Hello and welcome back to Series 3 of Launch, Alan and Ivory's careers podcast. My name is Bianca Vasilake, and today's episode is Corporate 101. Joining me to tell us more about what it is like to work in ANO's corporate department, I have James Rowe, a corporate finance partner specializing in equity capital markets, or ECM, and governance, and Athena Chuang, a newly qualified associate in the same group. Thank you so much both for being here. That's great. Thanks for having me. So, James, starting with the very basics, how is the ANO London corporate department structured? And what are some of the key similarities and differences between the sub-departments? London corporate is one of the largest transactional departments in London. So it's kind of cut in different ways. There are different sectors. So technology, financial institutions, infrastructure, energy, pharma. There's also different products, so takeovers or ECM transactions, restructurings. And then overlaid onto that, there are different disciplines, so ESG, cybersecurity, data protection. I mean, importantly, it's one large group. So although we're structured administratively as teams and the fee earners, such as the associates and the trainees work within teams and for particular partners or groups of partners, it is one department. So everybody works for everybody. And there's therefore a great deal of different kinds of work and there's a great breadth of work. And how does the London corporate department fit into the broader ANO corporate practice? I mean, we work very closely. It's historically, it's a London firm. So it's, it's one of the largest corporate departments, but most of our transactions are international. And I'd say most transactions, we work with other offices. So I could just as easily be working with a partner based out in Singapore or a partner in the Middle East or a partner in the States. So again, the same way as within the corporate department, we work across teams. We also work across the different offices. Okay, that's very interesting. Speaking of work, what kind of deals do you typically work on? And what are some of the more interesting ones? And why? I mean, I'd start by saying they're all interesting. (laughs) Of Um, course, we wouldn't expect anything less. (laughs) I I do equity capital markets. So what that is, is that's companies that are listed on public exchanges. Clearly, my focus is the London Stock Exchange, but I'm a global partner. So I've worked on, I mean, I've spent four years in Russia. So I did a lot of Russian listings. I've done listings in Bucharest. I've done listings in the Middle East. I've done listings in China. And so it's when companies come to market, but it's also any kind of corporate action undertaken by those companies. So it's capital raisings, reorganizations, restructurings, M&A acquisitions, and the governance, of course, the annual reporting cycles, any particular announcement obligations, discussions or changes at the boardroom level. And I think increasingly in what we do, there's a policy angle. So that's interacting with the regulators, interacting with the government. In the UK, that would be the Treasury or base, interacting with different trade associations, industry groups, and also all the other law firms. I mean, as a wider corporate finance lawyer, I also work on M&A transactions, but my bread and butter is listed company work. Got it. What is an interesting deal that you recently worked on? And why did you find it particularly interesting? I mean, I mean, every single transaction we do tends to find its way into the public papers. So uh, <laughs> the, these are large deals, which are, you know, actually they're very in size. So you know, they go down to, for a firm like ours, transactions at, at 50 million, they can go up to a transaction that's five, six, seven billion. 
So these are very large transactions. In the last year, I've worked on a couple of large restructurings. I mean, if we go back, I've worked on the Thomas Cook transaction, which was in the paper. I've just recently done a transaction with Moonpig. They came to the public markets and, and they do cards. We're currently working with clients who are in the fitness sector, clients who are in the tech sector. I think we all need a bit of fitness after this year so, and a half so, well, of sitting at home. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> believe it or not, I was out there trying their products and, and that, that didn't go well. Uh, that was part of our marketing. We And, and some of these clients, the, you know, the, the younger clients, clients, the more technical, sophisticated companies, they have t-shirts and they, you can buy gimmicks. So we've, um, that's changing the way we market ourselves. Yeah, very cool. So speaking of that, Athena, what are some of the typical trainee tasks and responsibilities in this department? My team focuses on both M&A and ECM. And in terms of M&A, um, there are a multitude of different tasks a trainee could be involved in. And I would say the major work stream a trainee would be involved in is the legal due diligence process, which is a process to flush out any potential issues relating to the target company that the buyer wants to purchase and which needs to be fed into the share purchase agreement, the main transaction document on an M&A deal. So what kind of categories would you have in this legal due diligence process? It's really dependent on the business, but usually... We review their general corporate information, their financing, any real estate that they they have, any leases they might have. We look at their employment contracts. We look at the tax structuring of the deal. We look at every single thing, which is why it's a really important part of what we do as an M&A lawyer. And so you would be involving lots of specialist teams with an A&O as well as local counsel because, as James mentioned earlier, all of the deals that we work on are multi-jurisdictional. Aside from that, you could be asked to review contracts as part of the legal due diligence process, as well as update trackers and checklists to make sure you're on top of everything. Would you also be coordinating all of these specialist teams? Yes, definitely. And so this process would typically involve liaising with a client, specialist teams with an A&O, including the employment team, the tax team, incentives, local counsel, as well as counsel for the buyer or the seller, depending on which side of the deal you're working on. You really need to be organized as a trainee to make sure you know when the deadlines are, what input you're missing from which teams. And so as an M&A trainee, you really need to be on top of your game. This due diligence exercise, does it result in some sort of report in the end? What would that report contain? What would the trainee's input be? Usually we have what's called a red flag legal due diligence report where all these different specialist teams within A&O and local counsel, they review all the documents and they flag what jumps out at them as a red flag issue that needs to be reported to the client. This then feeds into the transaction documents like the share purchase agreement that I mentioned earlier. I know that this is the gist of the work in M&A, but I'm sure you also have some other ancillary tasks. Can you give just a few examples, just a bit of a flavor? In terms of drafting, trainees may be asked to assist with drafting ancillary documents like board minutes or shareholder resolutions. And you could be asked to assist with companies' house filings. So when there's a director appointment or director resignation, you'd be asked to fill in forms or make these filings online with companies' house. You could also be asked to assist with the signing process, which includes collating and checking signature pages to make sure everything is in order. So now that we have the M&A side out of the way, what kind of tasks would you do on the ECM side? 
And also, just for our listeners, can you say what ECM stands for? Of course. So ECM stands for Equity Capital Markets. And as a trainee, you'd be asked to assist with drafting the prospectus, which is the main document relating to an IPO and also other ancillary documents relating to IPOs and placings. Okay, so what is an IPO and what is a placing? An IPO is when you bring a company to public markets, its initial public offering. The best way to look at it is you you have a private company that's owned off the public markets by a close group of people. A publicly listed and traded company has a wider shareholder base, which is institutional and retail. And because you're going on a public market and because there's that distance between the company and the shareholders, and and remember, you know, the directors of the company are effectively trustees or agents acting on behalf of the owners of the business. You need to make sure the company is fit for purpose, that it's got the right governance, the right structure, that it's capable of producing the right information. So you revisit the entire infrastructure of the company. You put in place the plumbing, the architecture, make sure they've got the right board structure, make sure they've got the right finance function. You produce the right disclosure that accompanies that, that tries to articulate what it is about the company, that its key selling points. So there are vast teams. I mean, the call that myself and Athena were on earlier today had 100 people on it. And you've got accountants, you've got PR, you've got financial advisors, you've got market consultants, and everybody pulls together. And the lawyers come to the transaction with a legal background, and that's our key to get into the room and to contribute and add value. But we're also participants in the in all the discussions. So be it they commercial, be it they legal, be it they financial we're involved. What is the difference with a placing? Because I know Athena mentioned placings, just for our listeners. A placing is essentially a company that's already listed. So it's already got all the structure, the infrastructure in place. And what it wants to do is it wants to raise some additional cash through the issuance of shares. Got it. That's and, very helpful. And and, and it, it could involve other aspects and it might be associated with an acquisition. So you do a placing to fund or part fund an acquisition. It could be because the company, if we look back to COVID and a lot of impact of the financial difficulties on companies, particularly in the UK, there was a large amount of placings in the first half of last year. Billions were raised and these were companies that over two or three days were going to market and were raising between 100 and 2 billion on the market. So there's a lot of the press last year was talking about these placings, talking about companies going to market. I mean, WH Smith, EasyJet, and these are transactions that we worked on. All very high profile and very interesting, it sounds. As a training ECM, you'd be asked to communicate with a client and the bank's or issuer's counsel, depending on which side of the deal you're working on. And one of the main tasks as a trainee would be to assist with the verification process, which is where facts and opinions in a prospectus or an investor presentation are checked for their factual accuracy. And this is a really important part of the process. You'll usually be given access to a data room as well as a data book containing sources of information, which you would have to cross-check against to make sure that everything matches up. So very much uh, detective work. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Brilliant. How do the typical trainee tasks and responsibilities that you describe change after qualification and then as you move on in your career with seniority? As a junior associate, you're usually one of the main points of contact for the client and the other side. As a junior associate, you'll be given greater drafting responsibility for documents such as the share purchase agreement that I talked about earlier or prospectuses. Junior associates will also be asked to lead calls with multiple parties and you'll be asked to work with more autonomy, but you're still supervised by a senior associate or a partner. Okay. James, how does this change over time with seniority? It's actually quite difficult to answer that because, I mean, I've been doing the job now for 23 years. 
and I learn something different every day. So I think the excitement of learning, the excitement of challenges doesn't change. That's always there. What you gain over time is confidence. There's less you don't know. There's still a lot you don't know, but there's less you don't know. And you, you develop instincts. And I think when you kind of start off as a junior, there's a, a potential fear there because there's a lot of information. You're interacting with lots of people who expect you to be performing at a very high level straight away. And there's a responsibility that comes with that. And the learning curve is incredibly steep, exciting, but incredibly steep. And then I think at about two, three years qualified, you start to realize that you know stuff. You're not quite sure. No, you don't quite know where you've learned it, but you start to see the contribution you're making to conversations. You start to spot things before they go wrong and you get into the swing of it. It's always a job that you learn on. And I, if I think I look back at when I first made partnership 11 years ago, I didn't know much then. <laughs> now, now, for someone you know who's been a partner for 12 years to say when I was a partner, there was a lot that I didn't Still know. Still left, yeah. It, a, and there's a vast amount more to learn. So the job does change and the work becomes more exciting actually you get more client interaction if that's possible we do transactions in the market that are very complex transactions and if you were to say to me what do i want to be doing in four or five years time i want to be doing more of this and i want them to be larger and i want them to be more complex got it tina why did you choose to qualify in this department so i was really keen to qualify into my department because of the variety of work on offer here as i mentioned previously i been able to work on both m a and ecm deals and within that on such a wide array of different sectors and the partners here specialize in infrastructure energy tech and everything in between so no two days are the same and i might be biased but everyone here is really nice <laughs> That's always important, I feel, yeah. especially when you work hard. It's nice to work hard with nice people around you. Absolutely. I, I think optionality is also important. You don't know what you want to be doing in 10 years time when you qualify. And Athena's touched on a very important point is that there's a variety in the work the associates get, which allows them to form their own view as to what it is they want to do. But also they get to work for different partners and no one partner is the same. And you get to learn from different people, pick up different things, and you get to take what you like and, and discard what you don't like and try different things out. And not just different types of work, but different sectors. I didn't touch an ECM transaction until I was five years qualified. Okay. What uh, did you do before then? I, I mean, I've done public M&A, private M&A. I've done private equity. When I was out in Russia, I was doing a combination of M&A, joint ventures, and some, and some equity capital markets works. I've done restructuring. So a variety of work, but I've been focused on ECM really for when I became a partner. Prior to that, I was it was a combination of M&A and ECM. And I know you're also focused on ESG which is the topic I'd like to do a bit of a deeper dive in because it is a growing trend. But first things first, what is ESG? What does it stand for? ESG is environment, uh, social and governance. So it's looking at capital in a wider sense. You know, we think about capital as money and finance, but actually we've got human capital, we've got natural capital. So people, the environment around us. And it's realizing that the actions that we take, the businesses that we run, the activities undertaken by businesses have an impact, not just financial impact, but have an impact on that environment. And it is articulating that impact and it is valuing that impact with climate change, and with the impact on biodiversity, the need for a circular economy, there's an international desire and a governmental desire to direct finances towards 
those activities that are environmentally sustainable and the shift of our activities to more environmentally friendly activities. So in terms of the transactions that we do, we have products that we are now creating that have environmental targets attached to them. So the interest rate you might pay might depend on certain environmental consequences of what you're doing, certain monies being made available only to activities which have certain sustainability criteria attached to them. In the equity capital market space, a company that's coming to market that has ESG credentials, there's an increasing growth in an investor base looking to invest in those types of companies. So we're all having to tool up at quite some pace in what ESG means, how you measure performance how you value it, how you articulate that to investors. So we're starting to speak a language around ESG and it's starting to become part of everyday work. The fundamental nature of what we do is the same, but in addition to looking at financial metrics, we're now looking at ESG metrics. And I think this leads in nicely with my next question, which is, can you give some examples of the work that ANO has done in this space? I can talk through a transaction that we're currently looking at. That would be really interesting, yes. Okay. We're working in a, and I've got to be reasonably discreet, we're working for a company that is part of the circular economy. What is the circular economy? The circular economy, it's reusing of materials. It's so you don't use virgin materials in your processes, plastics that you are generating afresh. It's the recycling of cardboard, the recycling of plastics, the recycling of clothes. And one of the transactions we're looking at is a company that's involved in the circular economy. It assists with the recycling of clothes. So you walk into Oxfam or you go down to a local clothes bin and you hand over your clothes. What happens with those clothes? They yeah. end up being redistributed. So they are collected, they're filtered, some of it is recycled, some of it is sold. Where it's sold depends on the type of clothing. And there are companies obviously involved in that chain in terms of the collection, the sorting, the distribution. And we're currently working with a company involved in that chain that is looking to come to the public markets. Working with that company, working with the financial advisors in terms of sharpening their equity story, their sales pitch, they're talking to investors and there is an investor appetite for this because it's part of this new economy. And then that's an example of where the clients that we are dealing with are green, for want of a better word. The investor money is pivoting towards green activities. Okay. Dina, what kind of work did you do on this deal? I've been assisting um, with this deal and I have been involved in the verification process. I've also been assisting with the legal due diligence. How is the process different for a green transaction compared to a normal transaction, if at all? It's what you look at. I mean, you, your due diligence, you're focusing on the activities of the business. So with any different kinds of businesses, if you're in a company that produces widgets, you're going to be looking at the supply contracts or the manufacturing contracts for the widgets. If you're looking at something that is green, you're going to be looking at the contracts that relate to the acquisition or distribution of the green contract. But also there's a kind of a PR aspect to this as well, a reputational point. A company that operates in the green space needs to make sure that through and through it is ESG friendly. So kind of its HR track record, its, its employment policies, its interaction with its stakeholders support the equity story, its sales message. There's a focus from our sanctions teams, there's a focus from our employment teams, there's a focus from our environmental teams on making sure that the company is squeaky clean. So it's not just being environmentally friendly, but really every single element of the company has to meet these goals. 
Thank you so much for sharing these insights. I think it's very helpful for our listeners to understand a bit more what it is that we do in corporate. Now moving on to a even more fun part of the episode, I hope so, is the Would You Rather game, this series. How familiar are you with superhero movies? Not very familiar. Not very familiar, okay. I have a Batman poster on my wall. (laughs) (laughs) Well, with that in mind, then I will ask this question. (laughs) So, would you rather be Batman or Iron Man? Batman. Why? Why? Bat- because they're the same, right? They're both rich, intelligent. They have super, uh, super costumes, good fighters. So why choose one over the other? I think Batman's had to struggle through some difficulties, some personal issues, and I think he's persevered. I think Iron Man has had a natural brilliance, and it's been a little bit too easy for him. And he doesn't have a heart. <laughs> yeah, and let's remember, let's remember, Iron Man gets killed at the end of the day. <laughs> well, yes, but in a very heroic way. You know, no spoilers, by the he way. He still dies. <laughs> Fair enough. Let's try another one, which is about superpowers. So we've talked about superheroes. So now let's see what superpowers you would like to have. Would you rather be able to read minds or predict the future? I think it would be quite nice to predict the future. Um, But that could be, I don't know, quite a scary prospect to see what life is like in 20, 30 years. Okay. So why why choose that over reading minds? I think it would just be a big burden to know what everyone <laughs> is thinking, like every little thought that they have. I mean, I guess as you master your superpower, right, you can filter whose minds you read at one time. So you can use it very strategically. I wouldn't like to read minds because my wife tells me what she thinks and I don't want to hear what everybody else thinks. <laughs> okay, so we have a unanimous decision on this one. Cool. Thank you both so much for being here. And I'm sure our listeners have really enjoyed uh, all of your insights. Thank you. Thanks so much, Bianca. Thank you all for listening. And don't forget to tune in for our next episode, as well as check out our social media and graduate recruitment website.